morning, ZPC. It is good to be here with you this morning. You know, as I've said before on this particular Sunday, it's always my least favorite Sunday when everybody's come and they've had an hour less sleep. You should see how grouchy you look right now. It's, um, I'm just kidding. You guys look great. Uh, the wind and the cold kind of woke you up if you were feeling a little sluggish. Uh, that is for sure, but it is good uh, to have you here with us this morning. So uh, before I kind of dive into our passage today, we're back to 2 Samuel again. We were in Psalms last week. Um, before we kind of dive back in, I want to give you just a little bit of background that will be helpful. Um, when King Saul and Jonathan, his son, um, were killed, as what would oftentimes happen in that time, um, the families and the, uh, the servants of that king uh, would begin to flee, right, out of fear that they were going to be killed. And so uh, this, of course, happened uh, for King Saul and his family at this time. They were fleeing, going this way and that uh, and in the midst of that, um, there was Jonathan's son, a, a boy by the name of Mephibosheth, and he's around five years old, and uh, this nurse was carrying him as they began to run away, and in the midst of that, for whatever reason, in the midst of the hurrying, she accidentally dropped him. And after she dropped him, the injuries were such that he was never able to walk again. Now, if you fast forward quite a few years, you have King David, and King David finally has taken up the throne. He's, he's finally kind of secured all of the power. He's secured, as we said a few weeks ago, uh, the city of Jerusalem to be the capital city. And so now, in some sense, he's able to just kind of sit there and begin to think and reflect. And that's where we are when it comes to 2 Samuel 9. So let's hear what this chapter has to say to us. David asked, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. The king said, is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, there remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel at Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and did obeisance. David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, I am your servant. David said to him, do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He did obeisance and said, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food to eat. But your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king, commands his servant, so your servant will do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. 
And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both his feet. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning. As we come in, perhaps a bit blurry-eyed after a shortened night, we pray that you would make us alert to you and to what you would call us to do, and that you would remind us of what you have already done for us. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So again, as we get into this passage, one of the things that we need to begin with is this understanding that uh, whenever you were a king or a queen and you had kind of taken over, uh, the last thing that you wanted was to have a family member from the previous administration, if you will, who was alive and was not imprisoned. And so, of course, as soon as uh, someone would take over, as we said already, kings or or, or the family members of the previous king or queen would always want to run because if you were alive, it always meant that that you might uh, drum up some kind of coup d'etat, that you might try and take over power. And so you were always a threat. And so it's no great surprise that when David kind of reaches this point and he says, is there anyone still alive who was related to King Saul? There's no great surprise in that question. That would have been a very typical question. The surprise, of course, is that he didn't ask this so that he could then go and find that person if there was one and kill him or her. It's because of the fact that he wanted, as he said, to show kindness to that family member. The reason, David says, that he wanted to do this was because of the covenant that he had made with Jonathan long before. We talked about this maybe six or seven weeks ago, this intimate covenant between Jonathan and David, this loving covenant. And Jonathan had kind of held up his end. He had helped to keep David safe from his father, Saul. And David now was determined to also live up to this loving covenant that he had made with his now dead friend, Jonathan. So David finds Ziba. Ziba was a servant who had served under Saul's uh, administration, if you will. And so he, he asked him, is there anybody alive? And he says, yes, yes, there is. It's his, it's his son, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And so he says, okay, we'll send for him. And, and so I just want you to imagine if you are Mephibosheth and again, remembering what you would be thinking, which is the closer that you get to Jerusalem, the closer you are getting to your own death or your own imprisonment. And so he goes and he finally reaches David. And when he does so, he, he, he really kind of more explicitly lies down completely, prostrate before the king. And, and while certainly he did this as a way of kind of, you know, showing that he was a servant, uh, others have also suggested that he did it in such a way that it made his neck uh, very open and vulnerable so that if the king was going to do what he thought, which was to kill him, he could just give him a good clean cut. So it's not surprising that David says to him, do not be afraid. For of course, he would have had a great amount of fear. But David doesn't just tell him to not be afraid. 
He says, not only don't be afraid, but he also says, hey, you've got King Saul over here. And you know what? Or your old, your old grandfather, he has all these fields. I'm going to give them to you, which means, of course, that you are going to be able to flourish, that you are going to be able to have food, that you are going to be able to survive. But not only that, he says, I'm also opening up this table for you. And I want you to eat at the king's table every day. I want you to come and eat at this table. It is perhaps one of the most remarkable reversals that we see in all of scripture, right? Where Mephibosheth goes from being isolated and in exile to being invited to the table of the king. It is a jewel of a story that quite frankly, amongst the David's other stories, those that are either salacious or that are exciting because they are more warlike, oftentimes this story can get overshadowed. And so the question then that we always come to is, what should we focus on when it comes to this remarkable story of David and Mephibosheth? One of the things that's always important for us whenever you're wrestling with scripture to always pay attention to are things that repeat themselves. Whenever there are things that are repetitious in a particular story or passage, it usually does one of two things. For one, as we said last week, it helps us to, to memorize. This can be kind of a mnemonic, right? The more times that they repeat a particular word, the easier it is to remember it. And so the more that we can do that, the more that it can be immersed in our lives and our hearts and change the way that we live. But secondly, it should serve as some kind of attentive flag, if you will, that's saying this is something that you should pay attention to. This is something that you should listen to. This is something that you should see. And this story has several things that repeat themselves again and again. The first thing is probably in many ways the very foundation of this Story. It's a foundation of much of scripture, quite frankly, and it is a particular Hebrew word, a Hebrew word that you have probably heard of before, and that Hebrew word is hesed. Hesed is a word that is notoriously difficult for us to translate into English because it's multifaceted, multidimensional. There's no way to just replace it with one word. In our particular passage today, the NRSV translates it as kindness, but it can be translated in many different ways. And it's throughout the Old Testament. And more often than not, it displays the love that God has for God's People And uh, as Pastor Stan on the Scott and Stan videos this week says that it's amazing in the Psalms, so many of David's Psalms use this word hesed for the way in which God loves his people. In fact, if you were here last week, uh, you heard Psalm 145 verse 8. Do you remember what verse 8 was? It was the one I said you should memorize. All right, fine. I won't do a test. Here it is. Because I know that you, you did it, right? You memorized it, right? The Lord is gracious. I'm even looking at it here to make sure I don't mess it up. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is slow to anger. And the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. And that word steadfast love, those two words, is actually the word hesed. Right, And so here in this particular passage, it's not just kindness, it's, it's steadfast love in the 145th Psalm. It can be loyalty. It can be kind of a dogged determination to not love without us, to keep 
loving. And so from the very beginning, we begin to see that this is a Hesed-like love that David is showing to Mephibosheth. And one of the things that we learn about Hesed, there are several things that we learn about Hesed in this particular story. One of those is this, and Eugene Peterson points this out. He says that a Hesed love, yes, it is intimate. Yes, it is emotional. Yes, it is affectionate. Those are things that kind of we, we would naturally begin to believe, yes, that is love. Oh, that's so nice. You know, those are kind of, it's the Hallmark card kind of love, right? Which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. Getting cards are great. Okay. But it is also dependable. It is also unwavering. It is also unswerving in its commitment. It is a reliable love. Now, when we think about love, those aren't cards, right? I mean, how often do you get a card and be like, I just think you are so reliable. (laughs) But a love that is unswerving and a love that is reliable and a love that is dependable, we know how important it is whenever we do not receive that kind of love. Amen? And so what, what he's beginning to say here, when we begin to see this hesed, we begin to see that it is a different kind of love, right? And here's the thing. It's a love, just as we see with David and Mephibosheth, that says, I am going to love you even though you are an enemy or at least a perceived enemy or you could be an enemy. And in fact, if you go to the very end of the story, Mephibosheth, later on, you'll see that he might have become an enemy. I'm not going to go into all that right now, but you can look it up on your own if you want to. And it's a love that says, I am going to love you even when you have not nothing to offer me. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David. And it says, I am going to love you. And why can it do that? Because it isn't based on the person to whom you are loving. It is based on something that comes out of you. In this case, it is based off of the reflection of God's love on David, who then reflects that Hesed love onto Mephibosheth. Now, here's what I want to, here's one of the things that we can get out of this. It's very practical, but none of us really like it, which is this. If you want to say, how can I have this Hesed kind of love? How can I show this kind of love? I got a great opportunity for you. Find somebody who you disagree with vehemently, especially let's say on political issues, right? Because this would have been a political kind of thing and invite them over to come have a meal with you and have a conversation with them. Who's excited about that? But that's exactly what we see going on here. This is a risky kind of love that that David has for Mephibosheth. It is a risky kind of love, but it says, I do not care. I am going to risk that anyways. And the truth, of course, is that in our culture, we are not cultivated in any, any way, any form or fashion to begin to kind of have people come over with whom we can have a conversation, even when we disagree with them on any particular political issue or, or how we deal with COVID or don't deal with COVID. And what this story begins to help us to see is it has nothing to do with whether or not you like the person or whether or not you agree with the person and has everything to do with this fact that if I am going to be a reflection of the Hesed love, I am going to love you and I am going to cultivate that. Sometimes we want to make complicated what it means to really love God and love neighbor because the more complicated you make it, the less you have to do it. And sometimes it's simply asking, are you willing to love someone else to share a conversation with them in spite of how you may disagree with them. Because the truth is this, if your table by and large is open only to others who agree with you, then let's be frank. That is a table built off of affinity, not based off of hesed love. And those are two very 
different things. A hesed love is a love that will reach across boundaries, across borders, because it is based off of who God is. The second thing I want us to see about this is this. A hesed love, when you begin to receive it, so that means when we begin to give it to others, it has the power to change who they are. It has the power to change how they understand themselves. It has the power to change their identity. It has the power to change how they think and how they believe them to be. This is one of these fascinating things about this passage. Did you notice at the very beginning of this, whenever Ziba is there and he says, hey, do you know, David says, do you know anybody who uh, was still related to Saul? Do you, do you remember what he says? He, he doesn't, or what he doesn't say, he doesn't say his name. He says, there remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. He doesn't even give his name. Walter Brueggemann says that Mephibosheth is a no name. That Mephibosheth does not seem to matter. And the thing is, it's not just others who think that. Mephibosheth thinks that about himself. Did you hear how he described himself? What, what am I that you would care about me? What was the image he gave? Anyone remember? A dead dog. Anyone think that that's a good image for yourself? He sees himself as being this dead dog. He sees himself as being somebody who has been forgotten, someone who was forlorn, someone who was in exile, someone who does not matter. He doesn't even get his name called. And then did you notice this? Did you notice the very first thing that David says to him? The very first thing. Mephibosheth. The very first thing he says to him is his name. And just like that, Mephibosheth knows if nothing else, he is at least important enough for somebody else to know his name. He is at least significant enough that when he walks in, the king himself knows his name. Now, my guess is that most of us have had experiences like this, right? Probably all of us. Have you ever had that situation where uh, maybe it's somebody who's really popular or, or just, it doesn't even have to be, just, just somebody who you think, well, they don't really know me at all. And when they see you, they say, hey, Mel. As long as your name is Mel. Hey, Erica. Brian. Have you ever had that experience and you're like, they know my name. And almost inevitably, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel significant. It makes you feel I matter enough that somebody knows my name. Have you ever thought about the power of a name and of someone knowing your name? In this very moment, all of a sudden, Mephibosheth goes from this place where it feels like he has been long forgotten until the place where the king knows his name. And magnify this. Here this is somebody who not only thinks he is not recognizable, but he thinks he does not deserve to be recognized. Not only somebody who is who is not known, but someone who thinks that he should not be known. Not only somebody who thinks nobody knows his name, but someone who thinks that nobody should know his name. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the king himself says, Mephibosheth. And this is really cool. In the first five verses, do you know how many times Mephibosheth's name is said? Zero. 
Do you know how many times in the last eight verses Mephibosheth's name is called out in one way or another? Seven times. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, this is not easy. Mephibosheth, 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 Mephibosheth. Did I miss one? Mephibosheth, whatever it is, all of a sudden he is known by name. A Hesed love says this, you are known because you matter and you are significant. And a Hesed love can change the way that he or she or whomever it may be can all of a sudden begin to see themselves. This is what a Hesed love does. And this is a power that we can have when we begin to reflect that kind of love to others. A Hesed love loves across boundaries. A Hesed love says, you matter. We know your name. But now here's the other thing. It is also incredibly specific. A Hesed love is specific. It is detailed. It has teeth. We talked about this in the fall. We love talking about love in our culture. Oh, love. Remember that? It's like this groovy kind of love, you know? It's, it's just like, it's just out there in the clouds. It's just like, man, love. Can't we all just love each other? It'd be so good if we could just love. That's not Hesed love. Because the truth is, that costs you absolutely nothing. You see, again, when it comes to David, David was not content to just kind of have this Hesed love. You know what David could have done? David could have sent the aforementioned Hallmark card to where he is in Lodabar there and just say, hey, will you just, I'm just going to write a note here. Hey, man, you are loved. And just send that letter to him. That would be fine, but it's not, it's not Hesed. He could have just said, hey, you know what? You know what? You got all these fields from your grandfather. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. There's a great little bungalow that's there. You just go there and you can just hang out there and, and, and congratulations. That may be love. It is not hesed love. Because what David does, he is not content with that. David says, no, no, no. I'm not just going to do that. I'm going to give something with teeth, something that is a sacrifice. And so he is going to invite him to his table every day. In fact, four times we are told Mephibosheth is eating at the table of the king. Are are we just dumb? And the narrator just you know, thinks that we just can't remember that? No. He wants to point out that Hesed love says that we are going to invite people to our table. That just as King David said, I am inviting you to this table. It is real. See, here's the thing. Hans Urs von Balthasar, whose name is longer than the quote I'm going to use from him, says this. Sacrifice and meals are always interlinked. Sacrifice and meals are always interlinked. Hesed love refuses to be a love that loves non-sacrificially. Now, if you are new here, you may not realize this, but if you've been around a while, you know that I have been on about a two-year sabbatical on talking about the importance of gathering around the table, the importance of our inviting people into our homes to eat at our tables. I have done that because of COVID, and that was the good and right thing to do. Let me be clear about a couple things. One, I completely understand COVID is still here. Two, I understand that there are those who need to continue to take a lot of precautions and who are concerned, and that is good and right, and I am completely fine with that. And I think that's wonderful. I'm talking to the rest of us, which I want to give you fair warning that we are going to start hammering this again. Because I think that there are a few ways to reflect the loving hospitality, the loving hesed of Jesus Christ, 
as when you invite somebody to your table. This past uh, Saturday, Friday night, we had uh, almost 30 inquirers at our house, had about 35 people there in all at our house, gathered around the table. And I want you to know, it was the balm of Gilead for me. It was so packed out and there people were talking and they were listening and they were laughing and they were getting to know each other. It was amazing. I loved it. And it was this great reminder to me of the gift that it is to share a table, to listen and to love, to eat and to drink together. It is an amazing thing. And here is what I want you to know. A, a Hesed kind of people like we are, are not a people who just talk about love and generalities. We are a people, hear me, of the fork and the spoon, the plate and the bowl, the napkin and the glass. That is who we are as a Hesed people. And what we want you to know is that when you come, there are a few ways to show the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Sorry for those of you watching on the video as this, this is an open chair that whenever people come near, you are inviting friend and enemy, neighbor, stranger, brother in Christ, sister in Christ or not, that there is always a sense of an open chair that is inviting people to gather around the table because a hesed love is always going Going to require a sacrifice because certainly for God to love us, it required a sacrifice from him as well. And again, if you want to complicate, what does it mean to love? Oh, I just don't know. What does it mean to love like Jesus? We should talk about this for a few hours. We should reflect on this. No, you should open up a chair at a table and invite those you love and those you struggle loving. Because that's what a Hesed love does. Now, the truth is this it would be easy for us to end this sermon here. But you know I won't because we still have 14 minutes left. And there's enough food for thought. There is no question about that. But there was one thing that happened that caused me to pause and not end here. And that was something I, uh, uh, that Tim Keller said about this particular passage. Though surely it's, it's true for more passages than just this one. He says this. He says that when David is at his best, and David is not always at his, at his best. We'll see this in a couple of weeks very clearly. But when David is at his best, he gives us a glimpse of God. When David is at his best... He gives us a glimpse of God. And the reason why that caused me to pause is because here's what I know. What I know is this, that when it comes to scripture and me reading scripture, almost always, and we've talked about this before, my initial thought is, what is this calling me to? How must I now live differently? What must I do differently? What must we do differently? If this is true, how can we begin to go out and show this kind of hesed love? How can we go out and be the sacrificial love? How can we love our enemies? And all those things are good and right, good and right. The problem is this, that we cannot do that. Well, before we begin to do any of those things, we have to do two things. One is this, we have to believe and understand that it, first and foremost, it comes from God, a God's hesed love for us, of God's determining love for us, of God's loyalty to us, of God's kindness to us. And the second thing that we have to be willing to admit is this, that all of us are Mephibosheth. That all of us are in some way crippled and broken. It may be sin. It may be brokenness. It may be an addiction. It may be fear, it may be anxiety, 
It can be almost anything. But all of us, whether it's because we feel inadequate or because we've been victimized or because we are jealous, all of us are crippled and are Mephibosheth. And the only question is whether or not we are willing to actually admit it. But we will never be able to reflect the Hesed-like love of God if we are not first able to admit that we are in desperate need for it because we are a broken people. This morning we are bringing in 6th and 7th graders inquirers, youth inquirers into our congregation as members. And whenever we do this, I always go back to when I was in middle school. I always think about that. And especially now that I have two middle schoolers myself. And I've probably shared before that when I was in middle school, I was, I was not kind. Quite frankly, I was, I was a real jerk. And so many ways. When we were, we'd sit around at our lunch table, we had a specific lunch table that we would sit at, this group of folks, and whenever we sat there, we would just endlessly, mercilessly ridicule one another. In fact, when someone would come up and say, hey, can we sit here? We would tell them, absolutely, you are welcome, but know this, you will be mocked to no end. In fact, it got so bad that my best friend who I had known since I was like five or six, his mother forbade him to hang out with me any longer because of the simple fact that I was so mean to him and the impact it was having on his life. And so when my girls come home and they begin to share with me something that someone has said to them, and please hear me, I know my kids are not innocent either by no means. But when they begin to say something that someone has said to them or somebody has done to them, yes, my heart breaks for my girls. I want to protect them. I want to find the person or the people who have said it. I want to do all those things on the one hand. And on the other hand, I am absolutely moved by whomever it was who said those things because I remember what that was like. What I know is this, that the reason why I did those things, the reason I said those things was this because I was incredibly crippled. I was crippled, as I've said before, because my parents had gotten a divorce. This is not to make people guilty. This is just the reality. I just felt bad. I didn't understand why. I didn't feel like it made sense to me. I didn't know if I had done something, all those things. And what I knew was this, subconsciously to be sure, that if I was crippled, then I was going to do everything I could to cripple somebody else. Because why should I be crippled alone? But what I want you to hear is this, that perhaps the greatest healing for me, and quite frankly, probably a major reason why I do what I do today, was because it was in the church that I, as a middle schooler and as a high schooler, began to be healed. You see, I would sit in church in those uncomfortable pews and I would listen to one boring sermon after another. But I heard enough to know that I was loved by God. I would go every month, usually the very first Sunday of the month, as I recall, I'd go down to take the bread and the cup 
And every time I did it, I was reminded that I was invited to that table. I would see the waters of baptism and I would remember that God washes away every unkind thing I had said or done. But perhaps as significant as all those things is this. That every time I walked into that building, I would hear one word. And that word was Jerry. And every time I would walk in, I would hear somebody say, hey, Jerry. And sometimes they would say it because I was doing something I shouldn't have done. And they would say, Jerry. And sometimes it was just completely, I mean, if you think I am loud and obnoxious now, you should have seen me at 12 years old. And it was, Jerry, Jerry, come on, Jerry. Again, Jerry. But every time they would say my name, I knew that I was at least significant enough to be remembered, to be known. And every time I heard that name, it was like one more bandage going over, one more ointment, one more stripe, one more sense of finally beginning to be healed from all those things that I didn't even understand why. One of the more significant repetitions, it seems to me, in this passage, it's really quite strange comes at the very end. We've already been told that Mephibosheth is lame. We've already been told that he cannot walk. And yet for some reason at the very end of this, maybe you noticed it, that final verse says this, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he always ate at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both his feet. We don't know for sure why the author decided that that would be the right way to end it, but I will tell you how I hear it this morning, which is that I hear it as an invitation. We are all crippled. Whether you are 10 or 11 or whether you are 85 or 90, the truth is that all of us wrestle with something. But what I want you to hear this morning is that there is no injury, there is no sin, there is no brokenness, there is no fear, there is no pain, there is no addiction, there is no anything that will keep the Hesed love of God from continuing to come after you again and again and again. And there is nothing that will keep him from taking out a chair at the king's table and saying, you are invited. So whether you believe that anyone knows your name or not, whether you see yourself as a dead dog or living in exile, limp, crawl, scoot, do whatever you have to do, but know this, there is a chair here that is open for you. Because that is what a Hesed love does.
Amen? Let us pray. God, it is so easy for us to long to feign as if we are without any crippling injuries, as if we are already whole, as if we need nothing. And yet, Lord, what a gift it is to be able to know that we are in a group and a room full of crippled people, but a people who know that you love them desperately. And for anyone here who does that not know that, I pray, Lord, that you would overwhelm them even now. That they would know that they are invited to this, to your king's table. For your glory and for your glory alone. Amen and amen.